0: Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker. I also spoke with Remnick on the podcast last week. This is part two of the same interview. In it, we discussed some things like the future of The New Yorker magazine, the future of media and the current age, ideological diversity, and much more. If you didn't hear our first part, which was more about politics, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, etc., please go back and listen to that one, too. Remnick began editing The New Yorker in 1998. Before then, he was a staff writer for the magazine, and before that, a Moscow correspondent for the Washington Post. His coverage of the fall of communism later became the book Lenin's Tomb, which won a Pulitzer Prize. Remnick is now 59 and continues to write frequently on Russia, Israel, music, and Donald Trump. He also hosts the New Yorker Radio Hour, a weekly podcast which you can download and subscribe to. So here's part two of our conversation. As I said, you can go back and listen to part one. I just want to turn to to the magazine a little bit, Sure. Um, how do you think the magazine has changed in since Trump sort of came on the scene if you think it has changed? Because I know I've read other interviews with you, and one thing you always say is that no matter what's happening in the world, you want to be sure that there's an article on you know. Knitting, not knitting, but like whatever. Great you know. idea. That is, yeah. I, I meant to pitch that to you. Um, but that there are things not... Speed knitting. Yeah, speed knitting. There's not just on politics no. and so on. But it also seems to me that the magazine has changed. Someone very smart to me said they thought that the way th- that the magazine had had ditched a certain detachment uh, that, that, that the New Yorker always prided itself on. I, I wouldn't have called
1: Jonathan Schell's writing on Watergate detached. Maybe more Olympian in tone than than in twenty than we hear in 2016, 2017, but it was deeply engaged. Uh, same on on Vietnam, and many other subjects in between. This is the nature of the political moment we're in. So, I I, I do feel, particularly online, because you're reacting on a daily basis, that. We have to recognize that writing over and over again every day, Trump is terrible. Um, it doesn't lose its efficacy or truth necessarily, but it loses its effect. Certainly not its truth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm, I'm aware of that. and But I think we the, the opposite reaction, which is to say, okay, we said this already. It's boring. Let's move on to... Um, um, oceanography, um, or a uh, more detached tone—I think that's that's a sin. This is an emergency. I really believe that. It's it's not the first emergency American politics has ever experienced. There are times we sh- where we probably should have treated something more as a, an emergency than it was, um, even in recent history. But this is a bona fide emergency in which a a demagogue of, uh, of of only the worst kind of skill and the worst kind of motives, a dishonest businessman, uh, to say the least, isn't power. And to treat it as as just another episode, as if Mitt Romney had edged out Barack Obama or something like that, would be a mistake. On the other hand, I do think it's important to to keep your cool eye when it comes to investigative reporting, we've had a lot of that. So Adam Davidson's work on uh, Trump's uh, consorting with money launderers in his foreign businesses, right? Or um, uh, Patrick Keefe's recent piece on Carl Icahn and his shenanigans as a an insider uh, in the Trump administration, also reaping business benefits from it. Uh, there you know, there the pitch is different. So there are different forms of writing and different forms of engagement with politics and and, and tone is going to differ.
0: Is there any aspect that you feel like you haven't covered or that you haven't done of this? Enough? You know, I don't think anything is enough.
1: The the story, to use the journalism word for it, the story is so protean. Right. I mean, what does it not involve? You know, his dismantling... Of P-tapes in a Moscow hotel. Nothing. Of, oh, yeah. <laughs> no, that was somebody else's story. I, I, it, it just ranges from his own past, his business practices, which we still don't know everything about because the sins are so protean. Right. Um, we we've tried to get to a lot of places. I'm also aware that I'm not publishing into a vacuum. There are other publications that do a different kind of thing and have different equipment to go at it, the Washington Post, the New York Times, most most prominently these days. Um, but I, I think we
0: should be unrelenting on this story. You said a couple of minutes ago that that you, you wanted to avoid sort of being hyperventilating. I don't think that's the word you For, used. No, I do, I didn't use
1: that word, but I I think just jumping up and down and saying, this is awful, we feel terrible, then what? And I think you also have to engage with why this happened, which is still something we need to grapple with, because it has to do not just with the past, but where what the future is, whether it's about the political parties involved, um or any number of other questions to to understand what has happened is is the only way to also understand uh, what's needed and and what's <laughs> to avoid disaster further disaster
0: do you feel like some of the reporting has gone too far or the it's more just the the opinion can be too hyper but no, generally. I don't I'm not
1: I'm I'm just saying this is just a, a thing that should be in an editor's mind. I I am not I'm not scolding us and I'm sorry I, I I'm not saying I'm sorry okay, I published I just, yeah. X, Y, or Z. Not for one minute. Look, this began for me, you know, the, the little writing I do do began on election night. I'll tell you a story. I I like I think most publications, and I would guess Slate is one of them, we expected Hillary Clinton to win. And the website, obviously, it takes place on a Tuesday. The website had a whole bunch of pieces ready to go you know that you would press you know post as soon as you know the a p or whatever declared her victor i My contribution was to write a piece about first woman president, and it was historical in nature and it was about Seneca Falls. I still have this piece somewhere on my desktop and uh, I went to an election night party where people watch tv and schmooze and eat and feel self-important and with because they absolutely know what's going to happen and i happen to bring my laptop with me which is a rarity i i don't you know unlike a lot of people don't schlep a laptop around all the time
0: and is that a shot at me for bringing the laptop not at oh, all
1: okay. not at all and um <laughs> and um and it around I don't know Isaac I can't quite remember the time but obviously nine
0: Eastern a, something of, like yeah, that yeah, you know yeah.
1: it was going south and I kind of went into the kitchen area at this friend of mine's house and started tapping away and wrote this uh, pretty angry piece called an American Tragedy about what was what was taking place and it was done before I finished this thing in a in a in a kind of um, uh, in a, in, not in a haze, but in 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 a kind of um, sprint, and it was done kind of hours before they really even um, called the election, and then we press send. And every day should not be that kind of piece, but in the moment, and for many moments thereafter, um, I think it was perfectly legitimate.
0: One critique of um, the media. That we've heard is that we're we're in a bubble. I'm sure you've heard this. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about sort of uh, diversity of one sort mm-hmm. at the magazine. Uh, I don't think that there are any people here. At least I read the magazine every week. I don't think anyone voted for Trump. I've never read a pro-Trump piece. Is that is that something that? And I think the same is true at Slate. Uh, I believe we actually publish. I think a list of who we vote for. I don't think I don't think anybody on staff voted for Trump. And I I, I, I happen <clears> to know it, it's it's tiny in number,
1: but That's not a unanimous thing here. Okay. Adam Gopnik. I got it.
0: Uh, (laughs) But I guess – But you're right. No, but – well, I don't know. To me, it doesn't bother me that I work for a publication where almost nobody or nobody voted for Donald Trump. But I'm curious. Do you you sometimes think we should have a conservative columnist, you know, the way – It's a different form. I – you know,
1: this is a discussion that I have and I'm probably more pro this than some. There isn't – we have certainly written about um, Trump voters. We've had any t- – and I, this is I do not plead guilty to. You know, the automatic we'd ever sent anybody to the middle of the country to write. This is in our case not true. Uh, George Saunders went to Trump rally after rally um, to and talked to, to to voters all the time. Larissa McFarquhar was in West Virginia for a long time to write about this. Kay Santa wrote about, insofar as there was a Trump intelli- pro-Trump intelligentsia, he wrote about that. Um, you know, it was probably never enough, but there was but this effort. More, uh, but uh, in yeah. terms of having, you know, David, Fr- you mean a like David Frum type figure? Like well, David the, Frum's a strongly
0: anti-Trump figure. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't... Well, this is yeah. it.
1: This is the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. So I went on TV not long after, um, uh, it was in the transition period, not long after the election. It was on Fareed Zakaria's show. And I get there and I expected, you know, the usual kind of uh, panel where there's going to be left, right, center, da, da, da. And there was a Clinton person. Neera Tanden was there. There was Dan Cener, who's, I guess, a kind of Romney Republican. And that was the three of us at this table. And I thought, where's the pro-Trump person? And I said this to Fareed before we went on the air. He said, "I there is no I can't and the bookers have tried like crazy. There is there is no pro Trump intelligentsia, if you forgive the word, um, who are willing to go on. There's talking heads. There are people that are on, you know, uh, a, a CNN twenty four hours a day, um, putting forward that point of view. But in terms of people who were not in the campaign, it's a much harder go. So I I said, so who's the pro Trump person? He said, wait." And on the screen comes up Conrad Black. Oh, no. Okay, so Conrad Black... From
0: his prison cell, or did they... Well, he's
1: no longer in prison, but he's not in this country. And if he comes back in this country, he's in legal trouble again. So it was being broadcast from Canada. And, you know, he gets up on the screen. (laughs) I'll never forget it. And he starts going on and on about how people like me and just insane to think that race or misogyny or anything like it played any role in this. And we're, you know, I I can't repeat his, uh, his aria, but it was in that vein that we're just being terribly unfair. And he's just, Trump is so wonderful. And I, I said, I think it, I feel like I'm hallucinating listening to you. So, but that's not to say that there are not millions of people that are voted for trump and continue to support him and part of the problem is is it is this reflexivity of part of, of partisanship i'm i'm a
0: republican i'm a democrat that carves up a lot of the well, So then is is ideologically should there be more diversity at places like slater the new yorker
1: well i don't think there's any lacking of ideological diversity overall in other words if you're going on social media or have the good sense to read not just a so-called liberal newspaper but also a cons- more conservative one, then you can, you can achieve that pretty easily. I, I do that. I read lots of conservatives. Have we achieved it at the New Yorker? Should we achieve it at the New Yorker? Is a kind of question we're debating. We certainly report about it and try to be very, very fair about it. I don't want... you know, Larissa uh, McFarker's piece on West Virginia was anything but ideological. Um, it really was. And George Saunders' piece was, was, was not a finger-wagging, nya-nya, you know, superior uh, no, quite piece. No, quite
0: the opposite. I qu- mean, he really... Right.
1: And this is a guy who's not in the bubble. Yes, he's George Saunders. But he also lives in Syracuse, New York, which has been obliterated by um, uh, deindustrialization, unemployment, and all the rest. That said... Do I individually live in a bubble? Yeah, I live in Manhattan. I'm in this building. You know, on the other hand, I have a complex family. I don't live entirely in a bubble. I, so no, let's I, hear
0: about your family members. On the this other side about, of my family,
1: yeah. when I go to a wedding, I I know that the majority has voted for not not Barack Obama, right? My wife comes from an Orthodox Jewish family and—, and um. Uh, I, you know, I didn't take a head count at this wedding, but I, I, I know and it's not for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, Middle East politics or, or, or more broadly, I, I know damn well and I have conversations with my relatives and we debate and we yell and scream at each other. And um, so this notion that, you know, one just lives in a kind of cylinder of, of uh, uh, agreement and self-satisfaction is is not entirely fair.
0: Um, you mentioned the press and the Times and the Post and how mm-hmm. they've done. As a former Post person mm. for a long time, uh, what what have you made of of them in the last couple of years? Makes and my Je- heart sing. Jeff Bezos. Uh, well, I you know we.
1: I think Donald Graham's last great service to the Washington Post, which were many. I mean, he just did. I, I think the Graham family is about as good as it gets in in American media ownership. But finally, they didn't have the wherewithal to do what was necessary. And the last great service that Don Graham did was to go out and find somebody who had way deeper pockets. And so far as I can see so far, no no, uh, malignant intention toward the Washington Post. In fact, only good. They want to invest in great journalism and see if they can make it work in in a digital world in the 21st century. And the effect on the paper, you know, I follow this very carefully. I spent 10 years at the Washington Post. I have friends at the Washington Post. Um, uh, I respect the New York Times, but, it, it, it you know, it's it's always, <laughs> I've had to, you know, work in opposition to it, you know, in, with admiration, but opposition to it my whole uh, career. Uh, it's better for the New York Times that the Washington Post be better. It's not only better for the country. And to see them, instead of having... Afternoon sheet cakes of saying goodbye to one staffer after another. Invest in talent and in a critical mass of talent. It's had an effect. It's had an effect on itself. It it keeps the the New York Times on its toes. It sure as hell keeps me on my toes. And God knows it keeps the administration on its toes. Is it the answer to everything? No. But I it, it, in this whole picture of what we're describing in the, in the era of Trump... The, the rejuvenation of the Washington Post is, is a, is a um, bright moment and it has a great editor too. Marty
0: Baron is, is one of the best newspaper editors um, I can imagine. You were a Moscow correspondent at the Post yeah. and spent how many years in Russia?
1: From the beginning of 1988 till the very end of 91, so the better part of four years. And then I, after that, I went back all the time
0: one thing i I'm curious about, I did an interview with uh, someone who writes for you a lot, Joshua Yaffa, mm-hmm. and I said to him he's in Moscow now. I read and, the interview okay well, I said to him what what is it that you think American journalists are not getting about the russia story and he said i th- to paraphrase that some version of you know people think that there everything is connected here, and there may be conspiracies of a sort, but it doesn't operate like that and I'm curious from your experience in Russia and your experience going back there what What you think American journalists are or are not getting about this Russia story? I think what Josh Yaffa
1: is reacting to is a kind of circumstances. A lot in this world depends on where you sit. Josh is living in Moscow. His milieu is um, skeptical uh, journalists, and I think a lot of them can't you know, it considering their experience of, of Russian power, see the realities of Russian power not only in its ugliness, but also in its confusion and its in sometimes incompetence and its all-over-the-placeness. And they don't see it as quite as um like a Hollywood movie with a kind of Darth Vader figure sitting in the in the Kremlin. I I I don't think Josh Jaffa is naive about what Russia and Russian technology and intentions are capable of doing and and did or did not do during the election, I think part of it is. And Josh contributed this to a story. We rarely have triple bylines in the New Yorker, but I worked with Josh and um, Evan Osnos on a big, big piece called "Active Measures." We tried to do the the whole story best we could with Josh contributing from Moscow, and he sensibly would hold up his hand editorially every so often and say, wait a minute, this is too far. We don't have enough evidence of this. But at the same time, he was contributing really terrific interviews with people in intelligence and in uh, the cyber world. um, And agreed with the, you know, this piece that he was signatory to, um, which is that there something ugly happened. There's a long tradition of this. And if you're Russian, Certainly in Russian power, you're, you're, and this is Putin's psychology, you are saying, now wait a minute, the United States did this, did this, you know, the long litany. Whether it's in places like Iran or Central America or in Russia itself, um, the Russians just, I'm talking about Russian power now, just think that we are incredibly hypocritical.
0: Which is not wrong. It doesn't excuse them, but it's that not wrong. That was part wrong. of the story
1: yeah. we tried to write. Yeah. Not to excuse a damn thing. Not to um, even diminish the idea that interference in a national election is a, is a question not just of tampering, but of national security question of the highest order. I, I, I think we can hold both of those ideas in our minds at the same time.
0: I've thought about the – you said – you know you, I, I don't agree with those who
1: – and you've interviewed some – who completely dismiss the story as a fairy tale, I think I think that's crazy. I think just the evidence is not there for it.
0: Uh, yeah, and, and, you know, when you say the incompetence thing, that when you're up close, you see it. I mean, I think that's, that's a, everywhere. Well, no, it's especially here you in the You see last, your own incompetence more clearly when it's Absolutely, and I just got back from overseas, and people would talk about Trump, I thought, as being much more competent and... Um, clear-eyed in what he wants to do than it certainly seemed to me but as so we've learned a, both yeah. in russia and in the united states
1: incompetence coupled with power can be tremendously dangerous yeah
0: well we may <laughs> go to the war same. nuclear war with north korea Well, so. that was
1: this morning's news
0: more of my conversation with david remnick is coming up after the break It's pledge season here at Slate, and we're really hoping that you can support this show and other Slate podcasts by joining Slate Plus. And you can do that by going to slate.com slash ask plus to join Slate Plus. And um, we actually have a special guest today to discuss this, Gabe Roth, my my beloved colleague and the editorial director of Slate Plus, who's going to tell us about uh, a very special offer that uh, Slate Plus is putting forward for everyone. Gabe, why don't you tell people?
2: Sure. Hi, Isaac. Thanks for having me. And hello, I Have to Ask Listeners. I'm Gabriel Roth. I'm the editorial director of Slate Plus. Uh, I'm here to ask you to support this show by signing up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash ask plus. The amount of money involved is hopefully an amount that you can afford. Your first year of Slate Plus membership is just $35. Uh, And if that seems like an amount that you can pay to support This show, I have to ask, the rest of Slate's podcasts, the Political Gab Fest, Trumpcast, the Culture Gab Fest, all the rest, uh, and to support the journalism that Slate does, the interviews that Isaac conducts on the site, the news reporting, and the uh, informed and illuminating essays by political writers like Jamel Bowie and Michelle Goldberg, the legal reporting of Mark Joseph Stern and Dahlia Lithwick, uh, all of the other work that Slate has been doing. If that is valuable and meaningful to you uh, and you would be willing to contribute to it, we're asking you to do that by going to slate.com slash ask plus. Isaac, why should people sign up at slate.com slash ask plus and not at, say, slate.com slash gabfest plus or slate.com slash culture plus?
0: Well, because I get a free dinner if they sign up at slate.com slash ask plus. That's the main reason. Not
2: If enough of you, the listeners, go through slate.com slash ask plus, Isaac gets to take some special person out to a nice dinner somewhere, presumably in the Bay Area where he is uh, recording this from. But it's not only Isaac who benefits. There's a lucky I have to ask listener who will also benefit. What will that person get, Isaac?
0: I think they get a phone call from me on their birthday. No. Yeah, they they right? or, or a loved—yeah, that's exactly
2: right, Isaac. Very good. They, they or a loved one gets a uh, a special phone call from Isaac Chotner or the Slate podcast host of their choice. Um, so not Isaac Chotner. Birthday. Yeah, okay. Well, I, if they're going through Ask Plus, then you would assume that they would be uh, the devoted Isaac Chotner fans, the people who— uh enjoy your dulcet tones and your interviewing style. But uh, perhaps they're perverse and they want to win for your show and then rub it in your face by having Weisberg make the phone call. I don't know. It's possible. It's hard to know. So if you're listening to this, you've heard us do this Pledge Drive thing last week if you're a regular listener to the show. And uh, you're also going to hear it next week. And you may also have heard it on, on other Slate podcasts if you listen to those. And if you are a person who... Is hearing me talk about Slate Plus over and over again and you're getting a little tired of it. There's a really easy solution that we have for you. What 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 solution is that, Isaac?
0: What you can do is subscribe to Slate Plus, and it's a really, really great deal, and I highly recommend it as someone I said this last week, but I'm someone who used to enjoy Slate Plus content before I became on became a staff member at Slate and it's it's really fantastic.
2: Um, if you're a Slate Plus member, you'll hear this show and all the other shows without these pledge drive segments, also without the uh, ad segments. Um, in many of our shows, you'll get uh, bonus extended content, um, extra segments on shows like the Political Gab Fest and uh, Trump Cast. Uh, and then you'll also get a whole bunch of extra series that are not available to the public. We did uh, a Slate Academy on the history of fascism in Europe and how it might reflect on our present political situation. That's something that I think I have to ask listeners uh, would be interested to hear uh, and which will be available in perpetuity to Slate Plus members. There's a whole bunch of other stuff, but the most important reason for you to sign up uh, is so that Isaac can get a fancy dinner. No. The most important reason for you to sign up is so that uh, you can support this show, uh, the other great shows, and the other and, and the uh, other content on the Slate website.
0: Uh, thank you so much, Gabe. It's really a fantastic deal for people. And you can subscribe to Slate Plus at that great low price by going to slate.com slash ask plus.
2: Uh, thanks for having me, Isaac.
0: It's been interesting in the last couple months. uh, Rolling Stone uh, is undergoing some changes. Graydon Carter, um, who is it's a Condé Nast magazine, Uh, Vanity Fair is stepping down. What what do you sort of see as the role of the editor in chief of a magazine in two thousand seventeen? And how is it different than from nineteen ninety eight when you took over the New Yorker? I think some of that is a personal decision. You know
1: how you choose to organize your Um, magazine, website, title, call it what you will, my feeling is that although my job in in many ways has to do with yes and no, let's do this but not that, let's hire this one, not that, to do that in isolation or in some uh, self-regard as a kind of editorial um, uh, superperson is a delusion. Delusion, especially with something that is publishing 15 things a day and then a big magazine with, you know, long, long pieces every week to say nothing of the other activities that we have going. I don't know a quarter as much about, say, science as Henry Finder and Daniel Zalewski, right? I don't know nearly as much about... um, show business or architecture or music as name this writer or that editor. And I, yes, I have this position and it's not, you know, it's not a a constitutional democracy, but there, it is a team. And a lot of these people, a lot of people, editors and also writers are empowered to affect what we do by winning the day, winning the argument, being convincing. So the old notion to me, uh, the only true uh, figure that I, I, I have to say probably was like this is Bob Silvers at the New York Review of Books. And for many, many years, the majority of his career, he was sharing with Barbara Epstein, a, a figure I think who's a little overlooked in the recent um, legitimate celebration of Bob's life after after he he, he died some months ago. But, at most other places that are successful and that have a, a future um i just read I just read a biography that's going to be published in a while of Jan Wener, and Jan Wenner's clearly had a great idea in the beginning um to make rock and roll and counterculture the culture and cover it that way but if you if I'm reading that biography right. He's not putting out the magazine every week.
0: Well, what about – and,
1: and, and, I, and, I, and, and sometimes when he
0: did, uh, it wasn't always to a, the a best result. What, what about sort of the public face of him? I mean you're talking sort of behind the scenes that you can't do everything obviously and that mm-hmm. other people have expertise. What about sort of the public face of a magazine in 2017 versus 1998? It's different. It's different. I think, I think you'd be naive or
1: lying to yourself if you thought you could just assume – everybody would beat a path to your door, particularly new readers. Uh, William Sean probably didn't go on the Today Show. (laughs) And God bless him, he didn't even have a table of contents. I mean, for many years, The New Yorker, decades, The New Yorker had either no table of contents or this tiny little box that just named the department's theater, you know, whatever it was. And asked about this, Sean very wryly said, um, it's none of their business. In other words, he wanted, he wanted the reader to have the leisurely experience of leafing through the gazillion ads that the post-industrial boom, post-war industrial boom and consumerist boom provided. And the New Yorker was, by the way, in addition to its editorial virtues, it was also a brilliant business idea, especially coming out of the war. Uh, it, you know, it appealed to a certain uh, uh, fairly affluent uh, person who not only wanted to read about what was in the magazine, but was very happy to see the ads for travel agents that were going to wherever and teachers scotch and all, all, all these things. It was a different world.
0: People don't put up with that anymore,
1: though. I don't the think. ads?
0: Well, they don't put up with not having a table of contents and flipping through every No, just, they don't. Yeah.
1: I I think you can you you can make it over for for me I think there's there are limits though. I don't think you need to hold the reader's hand at every moment and point and scream and explain all the time. I don't think that the lead of a piece has to tell you everything in the first paragraph. I don't think you necessarily need pull quotes so that I'm giving you uh, all the best little bits, so God forbid you read don't read the whole so that you read the whole thing um, but yes i but i I think you do have to struggle for your space more than you did in, in nineteen sixty one yeah
0: what percentage of your job is editorial, and what percent is the New Yorker as a brand um, business meetings you know how would you how would you divide that out i have a um there's a deputy editor
1: named Pamela McCarthy who is concentrated on questions of editorial business almost almost all the time. She's a very good editorial brain as such, you know, for the magazine and website and all the rest. Um but her head for business is is really way better than mine. Way better than mine. When I first started, um I had heard that we were losing money. And my look it's not the first time I've said it but it's the import, it's an important thing. My job in this moment of history in in terms of publishing history is to get the New Yorker from a pre-internet weekly print magazine that did that thing and did it well and knows what it's doing. You could argue with this piece or that piece but it 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 was it set a certain standard and to get it to the other side in which it has its soul intact and its integrity intact so that it's not just a banner on the cover that says the new yorker and just assumes the reader will think it's just as good as it was at its very best in earlier days it's to yes to be a success economically to 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 prevail which is tough for all the reasons we know we can discuss but to also have an internet version of itself and a daily version of itself that's worthy of of the name journalistically ethically
0: morally and, uh, and you feel like you can't you, can you envision a time where it's just it's not a print publication i what i know
1: now is that it's it's kind of aberration certainly we're in the newspaper world where i think it's pretty obvious to see that it won't be you know the vast vast majority of readers won't will we'll read it on on their phones or the rest. I'll, the vast majority of our readers still want it in print. Where that will go X years from now, I, I don't know. But the, the trick is you have to pay attention and be where your reader w- wants you to be. I can if, if I produce something beautiful in print and then nobody wants it and they only want it in, on, on, in its digital form, well, that's a reality to grapple with. But that's not a reality that exists now. I, but I'm not naive about these questions, and we're thinking about them and discussing them all the time. I, I, I think a magazine of, of of the New Yorker's kind is, is still in print a pretty good technology. The Sunday Times is not a great technology. Because, certainly for young people, they look at it, and they it, it looks like a sprawling dead animal. There's just stuff coming out of it, and it's hard to handle. The reason it exists... It's because it's still handling the display advertising that's still out there to get. There's no question about that.
0: Um, how much – do you worry the degree to which any website, the New Yorker, Slate, whatever, that, the degree to which things are written for one company, which is Facebook, is, is that a concern? I, I think it's, it, it damn well
1: better be a concern at Facebook. I think Facebook has to wake up and it is, seems to be waking up to the fact that whether it likes it or not, whether it's set out to be this or not, it is, in some sense, the most important um, media and even news company in the country, if not the world. And with that comes a set of concerns and responsibilities that it has to pay much closer attention to. Do we sit down and write something and so that it'll do well on Facebook? No. No one talks about that. Andy Borowitz? No, no, no. And you look, shot received, Isaac, and, and and not for the first time. But, you know, not everything is for everybody. You know, not everybody is reading fiction every week, but it plays an important role in The New Yorker and who we are. And, and I don't know what it, what it is that everybody reads. Um... I think part of why Andy – there are two reasons Andy does well. on. I think he's really funny. And second of all, um, he came to The New Yorker with a social media presence that doesn't hurt. I wish we all had it. Um, Um, I'm – as an individual – Yeah, well, you have social media presence. I look (laughs) and I use it and I watch. But I just – Twitter is not going to work for me because I – I look at people that have jobs like mine and they do one of two things. They either, they become promotional, which is really boring. We have a really great piece on this. We have a really great piece on that. That's a bore. Or one night at one o'clock in the morning, they get pissed and they say something absolutely ridiculous or stupid and they spend the next week cleaning up after themselves. Jacob Weisberg may be the only person on Twitter who has a job similar to mine who's actually terrific at it and doesn't seem to uh, step in the mud. This is my boss, so I have no comment on that.
0: Uh, <laughs> last question. Yeah. You've written a lot about sports and um, or a fair amount about sports. Yeah. Um, it seems like we're at a pretty interesting moment in American professional sports. I, 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 I couldn't agree more. And I, I have to say, I didn't even say anything. I, well, I, I have thoughts
1: about this. So I'm not even waiting.
0: <laughs> okay, go for it.
1: As I get older and I have less time on this earth. I diminish the amount of time I spend, spend watching on sports in general because I feel, really, I'm going to see another great catch in the outfield or a 30-foot jumper or or whatever. But some sports are just have announced themselves as possibly untenable, the most prominent of which is professional football. I think the contrast between the way the NBA behaves in the world and the way the leadership of the nfl behaves in the world is really telling it's really telling and the the evidence that's that has accumulated about the harm of football is so overwhelming i don't see how it's tenable i don't see how it's tenable Bo- i wrote a book about boxing but i really wrote a book about muhammad ali i'm not naive about the effect on boxers having interviewed more brain damaged boxers than I care to I just care to count. Um, I, I, I think pro football may be finished and it's the most popular entertainment in this country.
0: What about sort of the, the confluence of race and sports and politics that we've seen? Um, Look how much better the NBA handles it than the professional football. Do you think that's because of Adam Silver versus Roger Goodell? Do you think it's, it's be- part of it that those are the commissioners or do you think it's because the who the audience is that, you know, if you, I mean, it's, it's, if you look at who the audience is for college and professional football. I think a lot of
1: African-Americans watch football as well as basketball. I, sure, I, I don't think so. I think, I think part of it is leadership. I think, I I think Roger, the, the NFL leadership behavior when it comes to concussions and, and, and the rest has been, um, over time has been reprehensible inexcusable and and the nba is blessed with a game where for the most part the worst that's going to happen to you is your knees going to get blown out or you know it's not fun but it's it's not uh it's not endemic to the game that you're going to retire and and have brain damage i i don't know how they solve this and, and, the, and the charms and thrills of professional football have not been lost to me over, over time. I've watched my share of games. I don't know how you solve this. And I, I certainly don't know how you excuse it. And, you know, just as boxing has become a marginal endeavor, that may happen to football. It's hard for us to imagine because it's such a central part of the American weekend and imagination and fall and all the rest. You know, in the 50s in this country, if you were a sports writer, the three prestige beats in the 50s were baseball, boxing, and horse racing. No one wants to cover horse racing. Boxing barely gets covered. And baseball is getting older. I I think whoever's, you know, in the leadership of the NBA is sitting pretty, both internationally and in terms of its... um,
0: uh, the way it comports itself. How do you think Kaepernick last thing has comported himself compared to? Um, I mean, it must bring up, it must remind you of Ali in certain ways. And I'm, I'm curious. Obviously, he's a less skilled athlete, but what, what, what complicates it for Kaepernick is the
1: question of whether he's, um, uh, you know, in the top rank of quarterbacks. And it's, it's, um, uh, for better, or for worse. That's a, that's a vague uh, line. But as a human being, I, I can do nothing but, but, but admire him. I, I think it's incredibly lonely for a figure like that. And it has been in, the, in, in sports before
0: and self-isolating. David Remnick, thank you so much. My pleasure. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilling. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. To make sure you never miss an episode, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And also, take a few moments to rate and review the show. I'd love to hear from you as well. If you have an idea for a guest or just want to let me know your thoughts, please email me at at slate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com.